From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. Crash Connell, it's Thursday, December 21, 2023, and today and tomorrow are the last Fresh podcast, Mary Danielson. Indeed. All next week, no stand-up for the truth, all Christmas music. Staff going to be taking the week off. Lobby's going to be closed, FYI. These, this is one of the uh, blessings that I get to enjoy here on stand-up for the truth when you kind of just pause and let's catch up on the headlines with the biblical worldview. So mm-hmm. appreciate these type of shows today. Oh, great. Well, that's what we're doing today, and it's just a wide variety of what's going on and um let's get started um i i think it's good you know again to look to look back uh at the end of the year and uh look forward because god keeps his promises so let's dive in my scripture this morning is malachi three sixteen. it is my favorite bible verse it always has been it is unlikely to ever change um some people read a new verse and go no that's my new favorite bible verse no this is mine malachi three sixteen. Then, the Lord, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we give you our lives anew today. We pray that you would use us and continue to conform us into the image of your Son. We thank you so much, Lord, that you do not change And that you hear our prayers, our groanings, our rejoicings, and you love us as your children. And I pray for those who are wrestling uh, with suffering right now and hopelessness, or maybe grief, Lord. They've they've had some difficult things happen. And we ask that you be near to them as only you can, especially during the holiday season, Lord. It can be so difficult. But thank you for your promises to us, and that with each passing day, we are closer to an eternity in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. And like I said, I do like to look back a little bit from time to time. So we're going to open with a Today in History. Today in History, December 21st, the Pilgrims go ashore in 1620. Um, my first question, uh, living in the North here, is, wow, how did that go crossing the Atlantic in December? But clearly, um, they made it and uh, changed history. Um, so December 21st, the Pilgrims go ashore. And this week in history... Um, on the 20th, Louisiana Purchase was completed. On the 19th, Bill Clinton was impeached. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to go into that, but it changed nothing. Also on this day in history, oh, on the 18th, I'm sorry, in history, Donald Trump was impeached for the first time. That's interesting. Um, and there's quite a few other things. Uh, December 17th, the Wright Brothers' first flight. Uh, so those are things in history this particular week. And also, um, a Christmas carol. Most of you are familiar with that tale by Charles Dickens. It was released December 19th, 1843. He originally wanted it to just be a pamphlet because of child labor in mines and in factories uh, in the day. There were no laws against child labor, and I think it horrified a lot of people. His own experiences of deep poverty as a child with a stint in a workhouse and his father was imprisoned for debt, these things profoundly influenced his worldview. 
He wanted to release uh, it as a book before Christmas, but his publisher balked at his fancy binding that he requested and, and illustrations. So he ended up publishing it himself. Can you imagine? Charles Dickens self-published. It sold out by Christmas Eve. It was very, very popular. And it actually defined the way Victorian England celebrated Christmas, emphasizing generosity, family gatherings, and merriment. Fa-la-la-la-la. Uh, Tis the season to be jolly. So they they kind of started all that, uh, you know, in, in opposition to some of the very difficult dark times in London in Victorian England. So a little bit of trivia. That's a bit uh, of a look back. But now what's ahead for 2024? And I want to open up with Leo Homan's latest article. It's called Globalists on a Mission. Turn Americans against each other before a foreign power is called in to finish the job. And when I talk to people about what they're expecting in 2024. Number one is they're expecting big change. And I think uh, we don't know for sure. Of course, we can't see one minute into the future. But people are expecting big change. And one of the most grievous things, I think, in being here still on Earth is watching America go down. But Leo has some great things to say here. And he says, Obama's new Hollywood movie is very instructive. They're telling us their plans. So let's take a look at that. Um He says, Leo says, the globalists believe it's supremely important to utterly and very publicly destroy the United States of America, not because America is some bastion of freedom and democracy, because it isn't. Over the last roughly 100 years, America's major institutions have been infiltrated and completely taken over. We're talking government, health care, financial and corporations, the mass media, education, law enforcement, and the courts, the military. And he says 90% of churches and synagogues all have come under the influence and control of the globalist agenda. Some may believe they are still relevant and independent, but when push comes to shove, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of churches will capitulate to the globalist agenda of the Great Reset, which is aimed at digitizing every nation, every major institution within the nations, and every object, living and non-living, control the food, water, energy, and money, and you control the people. And, of course, he says that's what Agenda 2030, sustainable development in the Great Recess, is really all about. However, despite achieving such an immense level of control, it is still important for the globalist elites to totally deconstruct and humiliate America, destroy the middle class, and bring it to its knees. You may ask, why are they so intent on destruction if they already control everything? That's a very good question. And Leo says, because most people around the world still have the perception of America being a beacon of individual freedom and prosperity living under a constitutional republic. Look at how the masses flock to the U.S. southern border in hopes of being granted asylum. See, that's what he's talking about. There's that still that separation. And when you think about it, it's kind of amazing that people don't understand how how in bondage we already are. And Leo says, that is an idea that must be crushed and driven out of the minds of billions of people. To accomplish that, the globalists must destroy the biggest remaining symbol of individual freedom, America. Most of the upper-level globalists are Luciferians. To them, hate and destruction come naturally only by destroying the American ideal of a constitutional republic because they've already destroyed it in practice. Will they be in a position to where the masses will beg for a new system that will claim to have all the solutions to the crises enveloping the earth? Never mind, most of these crises have been manufactured by the very elites who claim to have the fix. And such is the 
uh, mental illness of all of this. So now, now uh, Leo talks about this movie by Obama. It's uh, Higher Ground Productions, a Hollywood production company founded in 2018 by the Obamas, released a new Netflix movie um, on Friday, December 8th, called Leave the World Behind, starring Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke. It's very instructive, he says. America, portrayed in the film as horribly divided by political, religious, racial, and cultural issues, gets hit out of the blue by a major cyber attack. Embedded in this movie is tons of symbolism, including three shots of the number six in the opening scene. As society disintegrates, there is no government to the rescue. Everyone is on their own. The overall theme of the film seems to be a seething hatred for humanity. We're all so awful, Julia Roberts' character exclaims. We're awful to each other. We're awful to the planet. Maybe it's best we all kill each other. That's what I hear this movie whispering into the public consciousness. At one point, one of the major characters reveals a three-stage formula for conquering a nation. The first stage is isolation, which included a power outage at the end of uh, cellular and Internet communications. They even hacked satellites, which stopped satellite phones from working. Once the communications and sources of information were taken down, the second stage was launched. This included synchronized chaos, where the country is terrorized with covert attacks, misinformation, disinformation, dropping leaflets from drones, etc., to believe that it's the work of China, Iran, or North Korea, where there's a good possibility it was actually caused by globalists in the U.S. itself. Now, these are the stages uh, in the film of conquering a nation. Okay, if done successfully, the third stage would happen on its own. A coup, a civil war, a collapse, the character says, adding this program was considered the most cost-effective way to destabilize a country. Because if the target nation is dysfunctional enough, it would in essence do the work for you. Whoever started this wants us to finish it. That's, uh, that's a quote. Paul Craig Roberts, a distinguished economist, journalist, and academic, sees a parallel between the current state of America and the Roman Empire. The Romans had many foreign enemies, but what really killed them were the enemies within. It will be the same in America. The wolves who control our so-called democracy have been working to infiltrate and destroy it for decades. So when the wolves from China, Russia, and or Iran come calling, they will find most of the hard work already done for them, and all they need to do is mop up. So if you see uh, that movie by the Obamas, um, I don't know, I don't think I would watch it, but that gives you a general idea of where that is going. Uh, speaking of globalism, we all recently concluded the COP28 Climate Summit, and Alex Newman has an excellent article on that, and it's called Biden Administration Pledges Billions for Climate Reparations <laughs> at UNCOP28 Summit. Reparations, there's, a, there's another buzzword for you in our culture, and I'm not going to read it all because um, Alex is very, very thorough, um, but you can find that on, uh, on his website. And it's called, again, Biden Administration Pledges Billions for Climate Reparations at UNCOP28 Summit. Okay, he says... Um, uh, okay. Uh, he says the United Nations Climate Summit is still in its first week, which it's over now. So this was written a little bit ago, but it's still very relevant. He says Western governments, including the Biden administration, are pledging to hand over billions of new taxpayer dollars for climate reparations and a climate green climate fund aimed at bringing regimes ruling poorer countries to heal. Self-proclaimed world leaders say, that this is just the start, as global taxes and trillions in funding will ultimately be demanded. There's your keyword, demanded. 
The latest wealth redistribution schemes come as voters and taxpayers in nations such as Argentina and Holland, among others, are rejecting the parties, politicians, and policies behind them. Recent polls show most American adults reject man-made climate change hypothesis, putting U.S. officials in an awkward position at this climate summit in a major oil-producing nation on the Arabian Peninsula. Wow, I guess some of that gets lost on some of the elitists. Alex says, right at the start, Western governments and Japan pledged large sums for what is being portrayed as climate reparations, dubbed the Loss and Damage Fund by, fund by the UN and its members. The narrative behind it holds that since freer Western peoples developed first, they've put more CO2 into the atmosphere and therefore must pay third world governments who misrule poverty-stricken populations for the alleged harm caused. Wow. He says all of this is based on the dubious hypothesis that human emissions of CO2, known to scientists as the gas of life, and we can't live, it can be no people or plants without CO2. Keep that in mind. Our our pollution that must be reduced to prevent alleged man-made climate change. CO2 makes up uh, 0.04% of the atmosphere with human emissions of the gas making up just a fraction of that. So all of this over that. The UN governmental, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change claims that reducing this trace gas exhaled by all humans will prevent climate change. Well, stop exhaling, everyone, or just get rid of the humans because they, they don't really, uh, they don't really accomplishing, accomplish anything anyway. Um, Biden and his climate czar, John Kerry, pleaded guilty on behalf of the U.S. a year ago and other Western governments did as well. So this year, Alex says, sentencing is taking place. On the very first day of the 28th Conference of the Parties, that's COP28, Conference of the Parties, in Dubai, governments began making pledges on behalf of their taxpayers. The German government pledged $100 million, while Japanese authorities promised to hand over $10 million to the start. The Biden administration pledged $17.5 million into the reparations fund, and the European Union vowed another 200 million euros. But third world regimes are demanding at least 100 billion per year. Third world regimes are demanding 100 billion per year just for this new fund as part of what they call climate justice. So that's where the reparations come in. All the first world countries have to pay the third world countries. The fund will be housed at the World Bank now as policymakers try to find a permanent home for it, and it's separate from the infamous Green Climate Slush Fund. That fund, which has been in existence for years, is being used to bribe third world governments into keeping their people in poverty by prohibiting abundant energy and restricting resource development. Oh, my goodness. Um, wow. A little bit more here, Alex says. This is all um, kind of important here. Climate activists funded by the Kremlin, European taxpayers, and the Rockefeller oil dynasty, infamous for funding racial eugenics and population control, celebrated the loss and damage developments. The responsibility now lies with affluent nations to meet their financial obligations in a manner proportionate to their role in the climate change. Uh, Climate Action Network, CAN, head of global political strategy, uh, was quoted as saying in the media about the development, um, the largest financier of CAN was the Sea Change Foundation. Congressional investigations revealed Sea Change Foundation received $25 million from a shell corporation in Bermuda known as Klein Limited, and it's controlled by Putin and Russia energy interests. Okay, it's just an absolute mess. Like I said, it's, um, Alex has a very thorough article there, um, but still, 
So we're looking at reparations to bring down um, the first world nations and pay back the third world countries. So it's just an absolute mess. So kind of along the lines of that, uh, something very interesting. Uh, and this is kind of from, from my What Can Possibly Go Wrong file. It's called Movement to Give Nature the Same Rights as Humans. And so this is not just stupid. This is dangerously stupid. And I'm sure you can read between the lines on the headline alone because when legislation comes down to humans versus nature, I mean, you already know who's going to win as long as the world is bent on worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So it's uh, it says here, legislation that grants nature similar rights to humans is becoming more popular across the globe with multiple countries and localities approving nature rights laws and several more considering similar legislation. Panama, Ecuador, and Bolivia all have moved to recognize the rights of nature with national legislation, a movement that has gained traction around the world and in the U.S., with 10 states having some form of legal protections for nature, according to a report by CBS News. The most recent country to join was Panama, where the new law was used to shut down one of the largest copper mines in the world. Of course, laws like this, uh, they're going to be at the whim of whoever uh, controls things, and that's just the beginning of this nonsense. But now we find out who is behind this effort. Uh, in Panama was Callie Vielenturf, a 31-year-old American marine biologist from Massachusetts who'd spent much of her career studying and advocating for the protection of sea turtles. But a legal battle to protect herself from sexual harassment in 2018 became a turning point for her, who realized nature did not have the same legal recourse that she had as a human. I realized we can't defend the rights of nature as I had defended my own rights because nature largely has no rights in our legal system. The marine biologist brought the idea to Panama's first lady and parliament where it gained widespread support and eventually became law. In the U.S., Seattle recently recognized the rights of salmon to pass through the city. These dams, according to the CBS News report, while Carolina has begun considering giving rights to the Haw River ecosystem. This trend has been encouraging to her, who agreed humans need a different way of interacting with nature. Well, nothing good is ever going to come with that. and We all know who, who loses in that. Uh, that situation. Uh, in case you're wondering, this is Mary Danielson with Stand Up for the Truth for December 21st, and we're just going through some headlines, a couple history lessons, and hopefully uh, you will find this edifying. And it'll help you to look up. It'll help you ramp up your discernment a little bit. Help you to look up. And um, uh, Pete Garcia, he has an end of the year article, and Pete really, um, he really just, he just has his finger on the pulse of a lot of different things. He says, it's that time again to put on my speculation hat and attempt to forecast what the coming year will hold. I've done this for uh, since 2011, so for me it's a amount of tradition. As far as my track record goes, it's somewhere between 30 to 50 percent, which is still better than the uh, National Intelligence Council Global Trends Birdcage Lining, he calls it. And so he's going to, he does a sort of a, a, a macro view at first. Um, he says, I cannot see into the future. There's likely to be many black swan type events that transpire with zero ability to forecast against. These would include things like natural disasters, terrorist events, sudden world wars, pandemic outbreaks, sudden economic calamities, and in particular, the mother of all black swan events, the rapture of the church. He says, so while we're not going to know the specifics of how things play out, he says the Bible does give us a, a general outline. And this is good because he just outlined seven things here 
that are, are flyovers um, that the Bible clearly outlines because, again, we don't know what's coming next. First, the rapture of the church. Secondly, the seven-year tribulation. The second coming. Jesus establishing his millennial kingdom. The final rebellion. That would be Revelation 20. The great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. And the ages to come. So he says, regardless of what events transpire this coming year, no matter how random things may appear, ultimately know, we know that the world is moving ever closer to that of Revelation 13. The question we have to ask ourselves is not whether this will happen, but how fast. How fast will the world move toward this prophetic end state by the end of 2024? Will the world move by the inch or by the mile toward that final despotic government headed by the Antichrist himself. So then he talks about, he kind of um, skips over some uh, some of the finer details, but he says, he zooms in a little bit, and he says, ultimately we know that Revelation 13 describes a world in which one man controls all of the world's ability to buy and sell. This means the power to control, manipulate, deny, or allow currency transactions must be centralized into one system, which is centralized in the hands of one man. What this tells us is that the U.S. dollar is going away, as well as every other nation's individual currencies. Think about that world for just a second here. Furthermore, the world's currency, singular, is going to be digitized and made accessible only through some form of biodigital technology embedded in the hand or forehead of the bearer, which, according to Scripture, it triggers a guaranteed trip to the lake of fire. Pete goes on to say, anytime any leader talks about resetting the present world order, it should raise red flags in your mind as to what they really mean, which is dethroning the U.S. and putting some other force in charge of the planet. For all its faults and flaws, the U.S. still remains the greatest Gentile nation to have ever existed. Now, here he goes into something interesting that I have not heard, and I, you can you know, email me at comments at standing for the truth, or just ponder this just for a minute here. He says, it's no wonder why God kept this nation hidden. And he says, Acts seventeen, twenty six, which says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Acts seventeen twenty six, he said, and, and he says, um, Until the timing was such that it would precede the immediate time before the seven-year tribulation, one last great opportunity for the world to receive the gospel, to shelter a fledgling reborn Israel, and set the stage for the world's greatest collapse, demanding a global restructuring that allows the kingdom of the beast to come about. Very interesting. Um, and you know that this, this continent wasn't empty up until the establishment of the U.S. of A. But certainly... Um, because we know from the scriptures that there are appointed times, there is the fullness of time. It's interesting to see and be part of, and having been born in the greatest Gentile nation to have ever existed. So I thought that was a very interesting observation by Mr. Garcia. He says, out of all the militaries in world history, the U.S. military has come closer than any other nation in history in attempting to master every domain. Now, the, the British Empire was the largest empire ever, as far as landmass goes. It was the largest in all of history. But he says, thus far, the U.S. has mastered the traditional domains of land, sea, and air, and to a lesser extent, urban, subterranean, cyber, and space warfare. However, 
The one glaring weakness the U.S. Department of Defense has, as well as the rest of the government for that matter, is its refusal to, refusal to acknowledge the spiritual domain. The blindness is due in part to the century-long secularization process of our nation's government. I think he's being very insightful here. And he says, I believe uh, that this coming collapse of the U.S. is due to the rapture of the church, which is something our government and most governments do not even believe is a possibility. The collapse will necessitate a global restructuring in the geopolitical food chain and all of the U.S.'s military might that is left behind, similar to Afghanistan, he says, will be acquired by the rising European Rome 2.0 power that also capitalizes on the vacuums created by the U.S. departure, the collapse of militant Islam, and that of the vanquished Gog and Magog coalition. Very insightful Pete Garcia. And he says this is our blessed hope. So the Roman Empire was in place when Jesus came the first time. It will be in place when he comes the second time. There was a lot of spiritual warfare when he came the first time. And thus it will be when he comes the second time. And also, uh, I always thought of the U.S. as representative of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Look at all the people that have come across and continue to come across our borders, thinking we are still the greatest nation on earth. And uh, the gospel has been freely distributed here. So I think there's a lot more to our existence than we might think. Um, Very, very interesting. Also, we want to talk about politics in 2024. And I'm going to start this. We'll have a break. I'm going to come back to this. And then I'm going to talk about the petrodollar. And if you don't know what that is and what it has done to this country, stay tuned because I am going to go into that uh, at length. But for now, I have a few minutes. Politics in 2024, get ready. It's going to be nonstop. It's going to be frenetic. It's going to drive us all insane. And uh, there'll be very little resembling the truth to be found. Now, the Colorado Supreme Court made history Tuesday with an unprecedented ruling that former President Donald Trump is constitutionally ineligible to run in 2024 because the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists holding public office covers his conduct on January 6, 2021. So say they all. <clears throat> the 4-3 to decision removes Trump from the Republican primary ballot in Colorado, which is scheduled for Super Tuesday in early March. However, the Colorado justices paused their ruling so Trump can appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which could even preserve his spot on the state's primary pri- primary. Uh, state's primary ballot, if the appeal isn't settled quickly. And Jeff Childers, I have a couple minutes here before the break, um, of Coffee and COVID says this, as of yesterday, the UK Guardian ran an unprecedented and historic story yesterday, headlined, Why Did Colorado Disqualify Trump from the State's 2024 Election Ballot? The understated headline correctly explains this decision is the first time a presidential candidate has been deemed ineligible for election under the insurrection cause. It's just the latest bizarre turn of events in the U.S. presidential election season. One more shattered record for the history books as Democrats continue shredding all semblance of rationality in a surreal panic to stop Trump any way they can, no matter how zany or cockamamie of an idea. Jeff says this time applying Section 3 of the 14th Amendment called the Insurrection Clause, the Colorado Supreme Court beclowned itself. There's a word for you. Beclowned itself. It's exactly what you think it means. Ruling four to three that Trump is ineligible for any office, not even county dog catcher, because of the January sixth riot, because he's an insurrector or insurrector or something. In practical terms, the decision bars Trump from appearing on Colorado's primary ballot. It only applies to Colorado, 
But if it sticks, it could make his election difficult, if not impossible. We do not reach these conclusions lightly, the court's majority airily and lightly wrote. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor, without being swayed by public reaction. They frivolously continued, misapplying the law and desperately hoping the liberal public would react with unhinged accolades. The decision upheld the Colorado court, court's earlier but equally deranged 102-page judgment finding Trump was an insurrectionist by clear and convincing evidence, quote-unquote, after a one-week trial, making their decision look less like a serious ruling and more like virtue-signaling political hand grenade, the Colorado justices stayed of their own order to allow Trump's lawyers time for an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, so they left the door open is what he's saying. I'd say the Supreme Court is bound to throw out Colorado's awful ruling since it is commonly known that the insurrection clause was passed by angry Republicans to stop Confederate military officers like General Robert E. Lee from running for office after the Civil War. And he says, comparing it to the Civil War is deranged and an insult to deranged people. And also DeSantis and other Republican candidates called for the Supreme Court to reverse Colorado. So... You know, he calls it a ridiculous sideshow, which it is indeed, because you know what? We wouldn't want the people to choose. Why would we, you know, why would we have elections at all? I guess let's just not have elections because we don't want the people to choose. We'll tell you what's good for you. Anyway, this is Mary Danielson. It's headline day, and we're going to cover some tech news, some petrodollar when we come back. And uh, so stay with me for a couple of minutes. Hope you're enjoying the holiday season, and I will be right back. Your prayers and ongoing financial support keep our truth at any cost mission drawn song. Standupforthetruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. My name is Mary Danielson, and we have some headlines for you as we wind up the year. Um, just looking at some things that uh, you may not have seen, hopefully news you can use. And I want to just jump in real quickly to tech news. This one's pretty bizarre and not a little ironic. And so it begins. This is from Patrick Wood's uh, Technocracy News page. It begins, here come the deep fake news AI anchors. Oh, my goodness. Journalists have branded plans for artificial intelligence news anchors utterly terrifying as an L.A.-based channel looks set to launch them next year. Channel One is using the tech to create digital humans to provide updates about what is happening across the world. The station wants to launch them on free, ad-supported streaming TV, including apps such as Crackle, Tubi, or Pluto, as early as February. But the news has horrified reporters across the U.S. who warned it could have, quote, huge ramifications for an already depleted news industry. Well, that's putting it mildly. Ruby Media Group CEO Kristen Ruby shared on X, quote, If you believe in the concept of fake news, you have seen nothing. At least your news is presented by humans. When AI news anchors replace human news anchors, the concept of fake news will have a totally different meaning, end quote. Alec Lazenby, a, a Canada's BC Today reporter, also shared his concerns on X. Quote, this is utterly, utterly terrifying. While the development of an entirely AI-powered broadcast is beyond impressive, it could have huge ramifications for an already depleted news industry and accelerate the loss of high-quality reporters and anchors. Well, compromised. High quality they may be on a personal level, but I get the impression they're all compromised. Anyway, they've sold out to the agenda of the day. I spoke with Chom Channel 1 founder Adam Mosam, who assured his company will not exploit the controversial technology. He had admitted that the misuse of AI-generated news is inevitable. 
But Channel One aims to, quote, get out in front of this and create a responsible use of the technology. But the public foresees a dystopian future where fake news runs rampant because computer algorithms generate it. Many online publications attempted this journey in the last year and nearly all regretted the decision. Mass media company Gannett uh, owns several U.S. publications, including our local uh, Post Crescent, also the Louisville Courier-Journal, the Arizona Central, Florida Today, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which used an AI service called Lead AI to pump out local high school sports stories. Yeah, let's start small, right? Gannett pulled the plug on its AI experiment in August after numerous article errors, and while the public may not be so fussy over local news about high schools, they fear such mistakes could happen on a global scale. Um, on Tuesday, Arena Hold- Group Holdings, which owns Sports Illustrated, fired CEO Ross Levin over the allegations um, that they were generate, uh, doing AI-generated writing and using headshots of fake authors and creating bogus profiles. Mossam One uh, told DailyMail.com it plans to be transparent with viewers about what footage is original, what is generated. Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, Patrick Wood says about this, in the future, AI will write news stories and present them with deep fake news AI, AI news anchors. And he's right about that. As AI improves, you will be unable to discern what is fake and real. Some experts are forecasting that as much as 80% of the news will be delivered this way by 2028. Layer on the AI bots uh, that will comment on the AI-generated stories, and you will see reality fading out of your rearview mirror. I mean, I trust you all uh, get to hear. The news is already a falsehood festival, and now it's going to be delivered by false people. How utterly appropriate. So... You know, they can, all they, all they, sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. They're not sorry, and they will do it guaranteed the next time, and they won't be sorry. I want to go into something, a little bit of history and context for you about economics and why we Recently, I ran across a quote by Harry Truman that I believe is very applicable um, this morning. It's really a warning tucked into a simple observation, and he said, there's nothing new in the world except the history you do not know. <laughs> Harry, you got that one right. He understood something called context and how history helps us understand where we are. Bible prophecy helps us understand where, where we're headed. But history tells us um, the U.S. is, was, has been uh, the wealthiest nation in all of history. But again, like I said before, the Bible says that at the end of history, all the nations are going to share a common economy. So something happens in the middle there that changes things radically. You are here. Put an X right there. Applying a little bit of context that then can help us understand the enormous changes our nation is going through. Uh, and some current headlines might help us see where it's headed, which is what we have uh, been trying to do today and what we do often on Stand Up for the Truth. The news media, now they don't give you context by which to understand or assess any given story. All they give you is sound bites to, you know, to soothe our relatively short attention spans. But we don't have to go back too far in time to get the story on something called a petrodollar. What is a petrodollar? We're going to follow money back to 1944, and that is one year before Truman's presidency actually began. World War II was still raging. My dad was serving in 1944. And 44 allied nations are gathered together in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, to discuss rebuilding the economies of Europe. Now, here for the first time ever... Rules and procedures are put into place to regulate an international monetary system. The IMF, International Monetary Fund, was established at this time, and the groundwork was laid for the World Trade Organization, 1944, okay? 
The Bretton Woods Agreement also marked the beginning of the gold monetary standard, uh, with the U.S. dollar being agreed upon as the global reserve currency. Now, linking the dollar to gold meant that the amount of dollars available for circulation had to match the value of the amount of gold in reserve. Simple math, right? This kept a government from printing currency at will, and the scarcity of the dollars kept prices and infl- inflation low. Now, in the years that followed, we saw the rise of the U.S. as a global superpower, with the sun having officially set on the British Empire, like I said, the biggest landmass empire in all of history. America then moved into position as a respected and trusted leader in global affairs and a position we have taken for granted all of our lives. America, remember this, was a creditor nation at the time, and the stage was set for the baby boom generation to grow up in a world of relative peace, prosperity, and fast food. But this dollars for gold arrangement only tells half the story of America's material wealth. Today, nearly 90 years later, we see all of America's uh, in economic decline. What happened? I believe the reasons for that can be found on the in the other half of this story. Fast forward to the late 1960s, from the 40s, now we're to the 60s. Progressive President Lyndon Johnson initiates something called the Great Society. We're looking at the Great Reset. He started the Great Society, the start of a socialist-style entitlement system that gave us Medicare, Medicaid, and welfare. Now, this was just the beginning of an America that would overextend itself with big government that it could not afford. In addition, we were footing the bill for our protracted involvement in Vietnam, and that was to the tune of $200 billion. So both welfare and warfare were taking a toll on our economy, which was quickly moving from a creditor nation, where the dollar was tagged to gold, to a debtor nation, five years, from 44 to the 60s. Because of our debt, other countries began to question the stability of our economy. They wanted to exchange their dollars for gold. You could say there was a run on our gold bank, right? But the reality was our government wanted to have more dollars in circulation than the fixed amount of gold would allow. Hmm, again, what could possibly go wrong? Or it was actually a supply and demand kind of currency, right? And that was called a floating currency. So 52 years ago, in August of 1971, President Nixon Nixon shocked the world by ending the gold standard, turning the dollar into a fiat currency, a government-issued medium of exchange, with no hard value, giving the green light to the Federal Reserve to print dollars at will. Okay, so then we had another problem. Global demand for dollars began to shrink. In addition, the U.S. was reaching its peak of oil production, and the world was becoming more and more dependent on oil. So Nixon and globetrotter Henry Kissinger, who recently came face-to-face with God, devised what was considered a brilliant plan to keep the U.S. at the center of the economic universe. Um, We come to find out it was a deal with the devil, but for now, we're going to call it Plan B. In a series of secret meetings between Kissinger and King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, the U.S. agreed to militarily protect, protect Saudi and their oil fields from foreign invasion. Saudi's primary concern was Russia. Still, remember, at this time was the evil empire of the Cold War era. But all the Saudis had to do in exchange for our protection was to agree to buy, uh, to price their oil exports in dollars on the world market. So everyone who wanted to buy oil from them had to pay in U.S. dollars. So now we've gone from dollars for gold to dollars for oil, and they're called petrodollars. 
Once again now, the world will be clamoring for the dollar. The U.S. then told Russia in no uncertain terms that the Saudi oil fields constituted a vital U.S. interest, which meant that they were willing to go to war over it because clearly oil could become a battlefield in the future, right? Hold that thought. Soon all the OPEC nations agreed to also price their exports, their oil exports in dollars. And this is still true regardless of the agenda of, say, the BRICS nations. Oh, no, we're not going to do that anymore. They, we want our own currency and all that. Okay, just follow me here. Global oil would now flow through the Federal Reserve, which is a private bank. That's a whole other issue. Most Americans have no idea that our country has made a fortune off of Mideast oil, although I think we've gotten the idea over the years, and why we have such a strong military presence in nearly a dozen Mideast countries. I hope some lights are going on for you, and they're going to continue to go on as I go on here. So what if a country needs oil but doesn't have any dollars? That's the big question. And it's simple. Just develop an exportable product, sell it to the U.S., get paid in dollars, and turn around and buy petroleum. Japan needs oil. No problem. Sell us your Hondas and your Toyotas. China needs oil, so sell us cheap clothing, electronics, toys, miscellaneous trinkets. Shop at the dollar store. South Korea will sell us any and all major home appliances for oil. And on and on it goes until America finds itself no longer a manufacturing nation, but a consumer-driven importing nation, all for the sake of free energy, because when we need oil, all we have to do is print money and give it to the Saudis. And in 40 years of printing money to continue this consumer-driven debtor's paradise, the dollar has shrunk in value almost into oblivion. You are also here. Now, I was in junior high school in 1971. At that time, a Big Mac was 50 cents. What did they say? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Well, today a Big Mac is over $5. That is an increase of, ready, over a 1,000% since America went to a worthless currency. Now, does this same two all-beef patties, blah, 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 taste 1,000% better than it did? Is it 1,000% larger? Is it nutritionally 1,000% better? That might be easier to swallow, pardon the pun, but no. Let's take the housing market. My husband and I bought our first house in the 80s for $35,000. Now, we sold it for $55,000 only 11 years later. Was that house foundationally better when we sold it that it should be worth $20,000 more? Oh, no. It was leaning much farther to the east when we sold it. It needed updating. It was not evolving. It was devolving like our currency. Um, Kind of a fake prosperity. That's what you get when you print money at will. It's a general worthlessness. Housing prices since 1971 have increased nearly 500%, but your income has not kept up. Here's a, here's a stat for you. Adjusting for inflation, we earn about 12 cents more per hour in 1971, and isn't that just kind of depressing? 12, 1971. Even though the 1971 dollar has lost 88% of its value, the dollar is still the reserve currency of the world. And the U.S. needs it to stay that way. But how much longer can we maintain such a system? Isn't that the question? Over the last 20-plus years, many nations that were once pro-Western are no more. The radicalization of Islam and its hatred for both America and Israel is the wild card that was not a factor at all back in 1971. And because the Mideast is being racked by violent change, a shockwave is going to reach our shores. Up until the year 2000, no one had dared consider challenging the dollar for oil rule. But late that year, 
France encouraged Saddam Hussein to to do an end run around the petrodollar agreement and sell Iraq's oil in euros instead of dollars. Russia, Venezuela, and Iran also expressed the same desire. And when the sanctions program ended in 03 and the Iraq war began, the challenge to uh, the petrodollar miraculously ended. But our position as a respected and trusted world leader really began to change. The big story today is Iran, formerly called Persia. Sanctions from the West were generally put in place uh, to stop the flow of oil and nukes and devalue their currency. But Iran has friends, clearly. They're behind the Middle East war going on right now. China, India, and Russia. They're also, get this, major gold producers. Uh, agreements are constantly being worked out among these countries to purchase Iran's oil in something other than dollars and break free from what I call the petrodollar noose. What will happen eventually, probably, is that none of Iran's oil exports will be traded in dollar, in dollars, and Iran clearly has no fear of any reprisals about anything. And here's the thing. The petrodollar agreement has no power of enforcement behind it. It's a handshake. Petrodollar agreement was a handshake. So the petrol emperor has no clothes. So here's the irony. It is slowly occurring to our enemies that if they stop trading in dollars, the petrodollar rule handshake will just fade away. Um, and so, you know, there are those countries, of course, who no longer wish to take orders from the West. They want to make their own rules. So Iran could be the one breaking the back of the petrodollar system and our economy uh, simply by setting uh, their own oil exchange and trading with China, Russia, India, which they will certainly do. So what's going to happen to the petrodollar? We hear all the time that it's, eh, you know, it's done. It's over. No, it's not. It's still in place. But when, uh, not if, the petrodollar comes to an end, we're going to see huge increases in our cost of living. And nations are going to do a return to sender with massive amounts of dollars that we've been printing with abandon. The dollar will be literally worthless. It is so close as it is. And it's going to go the way of every single fiat currency in history. Uh, Today there are a lot of international agreements in place that sets the stage for a huge shift in how international trade is done, ritually guaranteeing the end of the dollar as the global currency. And, of course, our position of importance on the global scene will it'll be the final nail in the coffin i do believe the middle east will take center stage as the bible predicts and we're being pushed and pulled and dragged into the global economy it must take place it will take place uh there was an article a russian article um that says the us by their foolish insistence on enforcing embargoes and sanctions against iran is hastening the end of the petrodollar and ushering in the age of us hyperinflation a practical example, and Revelation uh, students will appreciate this. They say, one loaf of bread in a healthy economy is a dollar. <laughs> yeah, what year is that? In an inflationary economy, it's a dollar seventy-five. In a hyperinflationary economy, it's $500. Well, a loaf of bread today is, uh, good stuff is bordering on $7 a loaf, which is insane. But anyway, it goes on to say, well, um, it's interesting Anyway, that the Bible tells us in Revelation 6, 6, that there will be hyperinflation during the tribulation period. And in fact, uh, this very verse uses wheat as an example, telling us that the grain needed to make a loaf of bread will cost a day's wages. So, uh, very interesting. I hope you got something out of that because uh, clearly uh, the rug has been pulled out of our economy by people with an agenda for a very long time. Uh, perhaps you didn't know that it goes all the way back to 1971, and yes, the Big Mac was 50 cents. That's just amazing. 
So a um, lot going on still uh, besides all these things. Uh, the Middle East is, I don't know, it's the match was lit, obviously, in October, and a lot of different uh, things and players in place. But um, Hamas has no plans to end this. Um, you know, no one's telling them to stop fighting and give up all the hostages. Of course, there's pressure on Israel all the time for many corners of the globe to stop doing what they're doing. Um, but it says, this, this is a headline here, Hamas's plan for the continuation of the war, expansion of tensions on the Syrian border. And uh, this is from All Israel News. Um, Syrian refugee camps, it says, the organization has established an infrastructure numbering dozens of operatives, Syrian refugee camps, and in the south of the country. Goal is to heat up the Golan with rockets. I think none of us are real surprised by that. Hamas has established military branches not only in Lebanon, but now also in Syria. So it is spreading um, like a wildfire. The Syrian branch has allegedly been involved in the shooting at Israel from Syria uh, uh, last Passover which accompanied the barrage by, barrage by the Hamas branch in Lebanon toward the north of Israel. So uh, many, many operatives in the north. I don't think for a second this is going to settle down until somebody or something comes along that forces it. You know, it's interesting because I think it was Pete says, there are a number of black swan events that we don't foresee. We certainly didn't see COVID coming. So that is kind of what he's talking about. Um, there was a meeting in Turkey um, where Hamas leaders uh, aim to coordinate the positions regarding the continuation of the war, both in the Gaza Strip and in Lebanon, um, and also looking to get more prisoners released, of course. So whatever it is they can do. Um, there's another one here. I, I, I ran headline one more. We have time for before I read. Close with a hymn history. Hackers warn Supreme Leader of Iran, Khamenei, playing with fire has a price. This is just a uh, a taste of what we have in store. So now we have some cyber hackers. A group of hackers previously linked to Israel said on Monday that it successfully hacked gas stations across Iran and disabled them. Oh my goodness, such mischief. Iranian state media reported that 70% of the regime's gas stations were out of service and the system's failure was due to a software problem. Iran has 33,000 gas stations nationwide. Um, so it's an Israeli group stating they successfully hacked their way into the payment systems of the gas stations as well as the central server and management system of each gas station. So eh, we're going to see a lot more of that. We are going to see um, the, more military attacks by, by the Yemenis. That sort of came out of nowhere. Um, and again, as I said earlier in the week, the IDF uh, believes it will take months to dismantle Hamas's terror capabilities in Gaza, um, just yesterday, too, the IDF hit over 300 targets. Just an amazing thing. And um, we really want to keep an eye on that, along with all the other uh, globus agendas. And again, nothing is by accident. Everything is very carefully planned. And God is the one who is allowing these things to fall into place um, so that we are ever closer to the rapture of the church. So... I love the hymn histories. This book is called Be Still My Soul. There are a couple of them out there. But for, for Christmas season, and we all sing this, Joy to the World, let's look at the history of that. In this beloved Christmas carol, two artistic giants meet, 
Isaac Watts was challenging the churches of 18th century England with fresh hymn texts, loose paraphrases of the Psalms, as well as new expressions of the faith. He made his first splash with the 1707 collection, Hymns and Spiritual Songs, followed in 1719 by Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament, which included the text of Joy to the World, based on Psalm 98. In this second collection, Watts was conducting a sort of literary experiment. Could he capture the passion of the Psalms while expressing Christian theology? As he put it, how could he make David sound like a Christian? That's just strange. Anyway, if you compare this carol to the biblical text, you'll see how he did this. Psalm 98.4 invites the whole world to shout for joy. But Watts supplies the Christ factor. The Lord is come. We find other seeds of his lyrics in verses 7 and 8 and perhaps even in Psalm 96. While maintaining content connection with the Psalms, Watts was allowing the Spirit to lead him in new directions. Though he had many opponents who mocked these songs as Watts' whims, he had clearly sparked a worship revolution, and he was famous for it. How interesting. George Frederick Handel was a leading composer of the time. Born in Germany in the same year as his countryman J.S. Bach, he made a living writing secular music, churning out new works for the opera-loving crowd across the European continent. Invited to London in 1713 to write a new Italian-style opera, he chose to stay in that city, and he soon shifted his artistic interest to a new form, the religious oratorio. Drawing from his pietistic upbringing, he poured his faith into rich works of music. His best-known oratorio, Handel's Messiah, was written in 1741 in a period of just 23 days, and it still thrills Christians today. I heard recently of someone who said they never heard of Handel's Messiah, and I think we have a whole generation who needs to be exposed to that. It's absolutely beautiful. Anyway, going on here in this history, uh, wrapping it up. So these two artistic giants both lived in England for several decades. Though they worked with different crowds, we can presume they knew each other or at least knew of each other, but it took a third musical master a century later to put Watts's words with Handel's music and make this majestic Christmas carol. In the early 1800s, maestro Lowell Mason, in his lifelong quest to improve the quality of American church music, cobbled together some musical lines from Handel's Messiah and affixed the Watts text. The result is the familiar song we now enjoy. And actually, I is my understanding that it is a song about the second coming, not the first coming. So that's interesting um, how Watts uh, cobbled together some psalms and uh, Handel and Bach joined in, and this other gentleman, Lowell Mason. So, Joy to the World, think about that when you're singing it come Sunday. Um, what a great song that is. So, um, that concludes some headlines for today. Tomorrow, uh, Chris Quintana is going to join us, and we're going to talk about uh, prophecies of his first coming. We're going to have a Christmas theme. We're going to talk about the fullness of time and some other things uh, in the Bible that um, hopefully will edify us all as we head into this holiday weekend. And I hope you will join us tomorrow for the last fresh podcast of 2023. Again, Pastor Chris Quintana. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.